This morning, it's a privilege for me to introduce our speaker. As you know, those of you who are returning students, I try to bring different people all the time so that we get a variety. But every once in a while, we find somebody that connects with our community at a very deep level and a very enjoyable level. And that's been the case with Dick Foth, who is our speaker this morning. Dick uh, was a pastor in the Assemblies of God denomination for 12 years in a university town in Illinois. And uh, following that, he was asked to be the president of Bethany College, a college up near Santa Cruz, a small uh, liberal arts college associated with his denomination. And he did that for 14 years. And for the last three years, uh, he, was, he has been called, he and his wife, to Washington, D.C. to serve in a, a very different type of work. The presidency of a college is fairly highly visible and uh, very well known, but the work he's doing now is very quiet and behind the scenes. He's simply in Washington working with others there who are followers of Jesus Christ with the hope of adding their gifts and talents and whatever it is they bring to the puzzle, working on the hope that we could have in every country of the world a leadership led by God. Now, this dream was inherited from a man who began to articulate it in the 1930s, a man named Dr. Abram Brady, who had a heart for one state, the state of Washington in the Northwest, and who started to work with leaders there quietly and in behind the scenes and in their own lives with the hope that he could nurture a leadership led by God on behalf of the poor. And that vision has grown, and there are people all over the world now working on that vision. You don't see it in the headlines, you, you don't see it in magazines, but quietly there are people giving their lives to nurturing leaders in many, many countries around the world. And that's the work that Dick Foth is giving his life to at this point. He's become a very good friend uh, to me whenever he comes to town, uh, he stays in our home and this time, we've, he's been relegated to the family room because we have so many other people staying in our home right now. He's very gracious. And uh, he is one of the finest storytellers I've ever heard. And uh, the minute he walked off the plane, he was telling me a story and had me not only in stitches, but uh, had me thinking about the stories he tells. The stories he tells always have a point, and the point is always something worth thinking about and reflecting on. So let's welcome Mr. Dick Foth. Thank you. Thanks. Good morning. It's terrific to be back at Westmont. And uh, just to sense your heart and the excitement of the beginning of the school year. You know, as I was listening to Bart, I... One of the hardest things about moving in your life, and you'll find this as you age, if you move from place to place, is you have to start new relationships, you've got to find a doctor and a dentist and where to get your hair cut, and, stuff. and for some people that's more of a problem than others, but, but that, that whole point is. And when we went to Washington, it wasn't in a role, that is, I didn't have a title, didn't have a staff and all that sort of thing, and so I just had this card that I have, and I, I carry cards, I don't have any with me right here, but I, but I have cards that just have my name on them with just phone number. And he used to be pastor or president or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and we went to this dinner a couple of years ago. And I was a little frustrated because we get our value a lot from what we do and all that, you know. 
And I went to this dinner, and my wife and I were sitting next to the prime minister of an island nation and his wife. And across the table was Richard Halverson, who was then chaplain of the U.S. Senate, and Lloyd Ogilvie, who then became chaplain of the U.S. Senate. And then there was a senator, and then there was Billy Graham, and then there was uh, this man from Japan who's very high up behind the scenes in the inner workings of Japan. And during the course of the conversation, and, and you know, that's, that's rather heady company, and I wasn't used to it, so I was just eating and looking and listening, you know. And, and um, during the course of the conversation, uh, this Japanese man gave me his card, and it had all these titles. He was president of this and head of that. And, and of course, on the Pacific Rim, those of you who come from that era, you know that titles are important because when you're handed the card, you know how low to bow, literally, how low to bow. And so he hands me his card, and it's got all these titles, and I'm saying, oh, man. You know, and so I hand him my card. It says Richard Foth. You know? And he looked at it, and he went, oh. I said, what's the matter, Koji? Is there a problem? He said, no, no problem, Dick. He said, in my country, only person who has no title on card is prime minister. <laughs> I said, I'm there. That's cool. <laughs> we tend to complicate our lives. And those of you 500 here who are brand new to this school, uh, the challenge is there. You're making new friends, you're finding your way around campus, you're doing all of those things. But as we go along through life, we accumulate. We tend to complicate lives. And I believe one of the things that Jesus teaches us is perspective, two of the things, are perspective and simplicity. And over the next three days, I'd like to speak to those themes, perspective and simplicity. I want to talk about simplicity this morning, but, but just illustrate perspective for a moment. If I stand here, it's a very different view than if I stand here. I've only moved 18 inches down or however high that is, but it's a very different view. I have a granddaughter I told you about before. Her name's Allison. We were with her in Los Angeles last year and she came to me and she was four years old and I was tired we'd been playing and she came to me and said grandpa you got to see this thing I found and she had found a slinky one of those metal things that goes down there's like a spring that goes and it's multicolored it was kind of cool and and she said come see how this goes down the stairs and I said Allison I'll be there in just a second and she came around and she grabbed my face like this and looked right at me she has red hair and blue eyes and she said grandpa just a second is a very long time <laughs> she had a different perspective than I did she understood that simplicity on the other hand is seeing things for what they are essentially one of the great challenges in our lives as students as faculty as staff as administrators as guys in amorphous jobs in Washington one of our one of our great challenges is to understand that if we focus on the essential things of life not only do we grow, but others around us grow. I don't get much of my theology from cartoons, but Peanuts is one of the better ones. And I love that one where Charlie Brown is there, and he and Lucy and Linus are lying on top of the hillside, and they're there looking at the clouds, and Lucy says, what do you see in the clouds, Linus? And Linus says, well, over there I see the outline of the British West Indies. I said, what do you see, Lucy? And she said, over there I, I see the profile of Thomas More, the British Poet Laureate said, what do you see, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown sits up in the last frame, looks at the reader and says, well, I was going to say I saw a horsey and a ducky, but I changed my mind. <laughs> Simplicity. Looking at it the way God looks at it. Listen to, listen to how the scripture reads. 
Verse 15 of Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It's interesting because in the first chapter of Genesis, you get this cyclic thing. You get the, the earth and the water and the firmament, and you get the night and the day and the sun and the stars and this reproductive cycle and this growth cycle and all of these things. And after each day, God is saying, that's good, that's good, that's good. You get to Genesis 2.18, he says, not good. And the thing he says is, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, I, I don't believe he's just making a statement about marital bliss here. I think he's talking about the essential character of man, and it's borne out of mankind, and it's borne out in the rest of the scripture. But it is my contention, or I would su suggest to you at least, that the rest of the scripture speaks to this issue. The simplicity of life is that if there's one thing that we're not designed for, it's to be alone. It isn't solitude I'm talking about. Solitude is a choice. Aloneness is a state. It, it's something that happens. It is not good that people, human beings, should be alone. And the rest of the scripture speaks to that kind of issue. We intuitively know that's true. How many times as a kid, when I did something that was wrong, I got sent out of the room to kind of be by myself. People know this in, in prisons. If you do something even worse, they put you in solitary confinement. This idea of being cut off, of being isolated. One of the loneliest times of my life was the Christmas of 1961 when my parents' marriage was in trouble in Oakland, California, and I was at college, not unlike Westmont. And it was too difficult at home. I didn't want to go home, and so I stayed in the dorm by myself. I asked once of the student body where I was president, I said, how many of you don't want to go home for Thanksgiving vacation? I think 30% of the student body stood up. Because it's too difficult there. Some of you understand what I'm saying here. It's too difficult there. And I feel cut off. I feel cut off from there. I feel cut off from here. It's not good that man should be alone. We are designed to be together with God and with each other. Together with God and with each other. That's the whole point of life. You have two challenges that will face you in life. And they are the two things that kind of feed your life in one way or another. One is relationship and the other is money. Those are the two things that you'll have to deal with all of your life. So if you're going to take courses or if you're going to get counsel, get counsel in those two things. Neither of them is big enough to be worshipped. Those are lesser gods, but they are two things we always have to deal with. And what happens here in Scripture is when God makes a statement, it's not good for man to be alone, he, go he goes about responding to that idea I don't think I realized how much people who are powerful are alone until I went to Washington, D.C. People who we think have it all. 
They've got wealth, they have status, they can pick up the phone and call any Fortune 500 board chairman or whatever, I mean, they have that capacity. A couple of years ago, I told you the story about my first meeting in Washington, D.C., and I was sitting with a friend. Some of you have met him, his name is Doug. And he said, why don't we have lunch with the dean of the diplomatic corps in Washington? That's the, that's the foreign ambassador who's been in Washington the longest. He happened to be an Oxford-educated Hindu from the island of Mauritius. And we sat down to eat, and he was eating his veggies, and we were eating salmon, and it was really good. I was just getting ready to stick my fork in my salmon. And I heard my friend say, well, Mr. Ambassador, have you been thinking much about Jesus lately? And I, you know, I, I was heads up, because that's not the way I've heard most conversations started. And the ambassador said, well, you know, I have. Now, I'm not where you are, Doug. That is, I don't believe he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what he was saying. But I've been reading the Gospels for the first time, and Jesus is a very interesting man. And, of course, God's answer to this aloneness business is expressed in the person of Jesus. And we'll come to that in just a second. But we were into the meal just a little bit, and he turned to me and he said, Dick, do you know this man is one of the most powerful people in Washington? I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, yes, in this town, everything runs by who you know and what friends you have. And this man has more friends than anybody else in this town. And I begin to get a hint of this idea. It's not good to be alone. See, because you don't have to have money to have friends. You don't, you don't have to even have a bachelor's degree to have friends. You don't, and what happens is the world says to us, why don't you get these things so you can garner friends? The problem with that is that you never know why they're your friends when you do that. And so Paul, in his life, he comes and says, all these things that give me credentials, I count them as garbage just to know Christ and be made conformable to his death and the fellowship of his suffering, power of his resurrection, knowing those things. It's not good for man to be alone. I, uh, I walked into a congressman's room. He was dying of lung cancer last April. And I walked in and he said, Dick, I just, this thing, I'm on chemo, I'm on radiation. I can't focus enough to pray. I said, well, you don't need to pray. We'll pray. That's what friends are for, is when you can't pray, we pray. That's how that works. Some of us here know a young man by the name of Matt Hall. Matt Hall is the 15-year-old son of Congressman Tony Hall of Ohio and his wife, Janet. Matt has had leukemia for the last four years, and I think when I was here last, I asked you to pray for Matt. After a long battle with leukemia, Matt went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago. But during the course of his final weeks of his illness, his, his mom asked him, Matt, have you thought much about heaven? He said, you know, I have. And he was a very wise person for 15. And his comment was, you know, the thing that bothers me most, he said, I, I don't mind going to heaven, but I don't know anybody there, you know. And besides, aren't they mostly old? <laughs> Unfortunately, with 40,000 children dying every day around the planet, they're not mostly old. But the point is this that there is this sense that I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone here. I don't want to be alone in heaven. When I was pastoring at the University of Illinois, I used to go across the campus and, and 
and guys would say, you guys, you come here talk about life and death and heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. And these, these fraternity guys would say, well, if there's a hell, we're just going to go there and we'll do what we do at the frat. We'll just drink and play bridge and hang out, have a party. I said, no, 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 you, you have that wrong. Hellishness is not that. That's what heaven, heaven's about, the party. Hell is about being alone by yourself in the dark with no communication. The whole idea of Scripture is to say, here is the God who comes into my aloneness and says, if you'll give me the opportunity, I will wrap my arms around you and I'll call his name Jesus. Jesus came with a mission, this simple, essential mission. Let, let's keep it simple here. We tend to complicate it if we're not careful. This is Jesus' mission statement. Mark 10:45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, you know, mission statements are big in corporations. Colleges have mission statements. We work like crazy on a mission statement. And you're trying to get it down to one or two sentences so you can just say it. And see, people say, what, what's your corporation about? And you can just tell them, you know. But here's the creator of the universe who comes to redeem it. And he says it in a sentence. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Simplicity. The simplicity is that it's not good to be alone. The simplicity is that God responds to that aloneness and he responds to it in the person of Jesus. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and I'm saying, how can we, how can we explain that in just kind of current language so that people can understand? Here is God. He's got all the power and the glory and the rightness and the holiness and stuff we sang about this morning. And here I am, and I'm alone, and I got my cluttered life, and I got my posturing, and me trying to be a big guy when I'm not a big guy, or even if I am a big guy, I'm still alone, and all that stuff. And I've got this stuff in my life, the places where I commit things or omit things, and, and I'm dealing with all that. And I don't know what's coming tomorrow, and that can be frightening. I mean, all of these things. And when I tried to get a handle on it, how would I explain that to somebody I just thought about it this way. See what you think. Here is Jesus who says to you or says to me, Foth, here's, here's the deal. And the idea, the idea has to do with place. You know, Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God, with us. I'm alone. He comes to be with us. But I've got all these struggles and all this junk in my life and I can't get rid of it. And the other prepositionary phrase that you find in Scripture in the New Testament is in place of, in my stead. So he comes to do two things. He comes to be with me and to take the junk in my life. And so it goes something like this. Foth, here's the deal. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then we'll go to my place. What do you think? How does that work? I'll leave my place, I'll come to your place, I'll take your place, then we'll go to my place. Scripture says he, he left his glory. 
Theologians have a word for it. It's called kenosis, the pouring out. And, you know, he, we, we don't fully understand how that works. And he, and he takes on human form. And he, he, comes, he comes to Bethlehem, this little podunk town in this little country, and no self-respecting Roman soldier wants to go there. And he comes to this, this woman who's not married yet, this young girl, probably 15, and she becomes pregnant. There's a hint of scandal. And then later on, he has several brothers and sisters, probably half a dozen or so. So he's coming into a large family in this poor town, a laboring family. And people looked down on Jewish people in that day. And there was a totalitarian government and all of these things, and he comes to that. And he says, look, Foth, I designed you to be human, but you're not doing very well at it. Why did, why did I show you how this human thing works? And he comes and puts one on and calls his name Emmanuel, God with us. But I still have all this junk. And I start following him. And you read the Gospels and you read the story of people following Jesus. How do you find out about this Jesus who's the perfect human, fully God, fully man? I mean, I don't understand all that. How do you find out about him? How do you discover him? Well, you hang out with him and you hang out with people who hang out with him. I mean, read the Gospels. You see crowds following him around. I have a friend who wrote a musical once about the feeding of the 5,000. And this little kid comes out and sings this song. You know, the kid with the lunch, who gives his lunch to Jesus and he feeds all those people. He comes out and this kid, 10 years old, sings this song. If you'd have been there when he borrowed my lunch, you'd have believed him too. <laughs> this idea, this idea that as we start following him, we discover him. And, and you've heard that here before. You've heard it a lot here. But I'm saying it again because over and over again in Washington, I keep seeing it. I keep seeing it. I see it with people who are powerful people who are intellectually light years ahead of me. But they are so lonely. And there's something deep that's missing and they can't get a handle on it. And they are just caught up in the simplicity about Jesus. And so I start following him. And I say, I kind of like that. Look, he's doing some miracles and then we have lunch and it's this big deal and, and we're just following him. And pretty soon I say, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to my father's house. Would you like to come? And I say, well, what, what's it like? I mean, is, is it like this? He says, oh, it's, it's like this and it's more than this. It's better. I say, well, yeah, I'd like to go. He says, well, you only have that, that thing, though, Foth. You got that stuff that's hanging on you. That, you know, the junk in your life. The way you violate me and violate other people and all that stuff. I said, you know, I've, I've tried to get rid of this. I, I I've washed and I, I try to do good stuff to try to get rid of it. I just can't seem to shake it. He said, well, why don't I take care of that? And so he leapfrogs my issues, comes to my person, and he starts walking me toward the father's house. And then I say, how do I get rid of this junk? And he says, well, why don't we just take it and nail it to this cross? And then we'll go on to my father's place. That's the good news. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then we'll go to my place. Simplicity is power when it comes to living a life that is full. Why would he say that loving each other is the mark of following Christ? Because anybody can do that. A kid can do that. 
people of different ethnic backgrounds and different languages can do that. What we call retarded people can do that. People who are in wheelchairs can do that. People who are real old can do that. There is that, that thing that happens when you love each other and people see that, that they're just attracted to it. They're attracted to it. And when they're attracted to you, they're attracted to him. I'll leave my place. I'll come to your place. I'll take your place. Then we'll go to my place. As I've watched this happen in Washington, I've been so encouraged because I was always of a mind that if you didn't believe what I believed, we couldn't really talk much together. But when I started seeing that there are a number of things that we as human beings share together, everybody has to eat, everybody has some connection with some family or some friend somewhere. Those are common things. When I started working with the common things and then grew from there, I started seeing other things happen without making judgment about that. It's not good for man to be alone. And if we start with my belief systems and I find out that I'm different than you are, I feel more alone than when we started talking. But if we just start by having a piece of pie. Ever notice how many times Jesus ate with people? Every time he turns around, eating this guy's house, 4,000 there, 5,000. I mean, it's just... Here's Zacchaeus, this little short rip-off artist, up a tree out on a limb in Jericho, and he calls him down. And he's not a holy guy at all. He's a crummy guy. And if I'm holy, I would have spit on him. Say, ah, you're not holy. Let's vaporize you, you know. And, but what does he do? He wants to go to his house for dinner. What was it about Jesus that made the scumbags of the world come up to him when he walked into town and invite him over for lunch? What was it about him? There was something about how he saw these people and how he saw them was valuable and how he saw them was alone. And he said, my whole thing is to come to be with you and take you to my dad's place. That's what this is about. And some people don't get it right away. Most of us don't get it right away. We learn, and this is what I started to say earlier, we learn about people by hanging, excuse me, by hanging around them. I learn how to tie my shoes by watching my parents tie their shoes. I learn how to eat, hopefully, by watching my parents do this. I learn social etiquette by these. And I learn about what real life is by hanging around Jesus and the people who walk with him. I'm in a group on Tuesday mornings in Washington of people who are former government officials. It's it's not important that I name their names. If I said them, you would know. And I may have told you the story when I was here last, but I love this story, so I'm telling it again. This is a group of pretty intellectual people, and and I get to go just because I get to go. I don't feel like I'm on a level with it. Well, you know how that is. Some of you understand how that is. This guy's got a 200 IQ, and... You don't, you know, and so you do, but, but when you get to hang out with them, you'll learn stuff. And, and going to this Tuesday morning group is like having a political science, history, theology, philosophy, sociology class every Tuesday morning. 
because these guys are talking about world, world economics and they're talking about the Republican National Convention, the Democratic National Convention. There's a real conservative columnist that's there and there's a, there's a real liberal other kind of person who's there and the former head of a Democratic Party in a southeastern state and, and everything in between. So a couple of CIA types who are now retired and it's just a real interesting group. And I, so I, I just go and I eat and I watch and I listen and once in a while participate. And one morning I walked in and, well, you never know who's going to show up. And I looked across the table and there sat Glenn Campbell. Now, those of you who are, well, all of you are younger than I am, so all of you, you, you may not know that name, but at one time in history he was quite a wealthy, well-known country singer, kind of a country western, and he sang a lot of songs like By the Time I Get to Phoenix and Rhinestone Cowboy and Wichita, and all these kind of songs that your parents know about. And... Uh, he was there, and I said, hi, Glenn, I'm Dick Foles, nice to meet you, and I sat down. And about five or six years ago, he had a powerful experience with the Lord. And somebody asked him to tell about it, so he told about it. And then, in this group, about 30% of them are what I would call followers. They don't know if Jesus is for real, but they really like the guys they have breakfast with, and so they come to breakfast. They don't know if Jesus is the Christ or if he's just a good teacher, a nice philosopher, so they're just watching and listening. 70% are authentic believers in terms of they believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Anyway, somebody said, any questions? And this attorney, who's in the same firm that Ron Brown, former Commerce Secretary, is in, turned to Glenn and said, Glenn, you know, I don't know much about Jesus. These guys talk about him, but I don't know. How does he work in your life every day? And Glenn started telling the story about being in a casino in Lake Tahoe before he came to Christ. And he said, I was there, and, and I kind of had this out-of-body experience, and I saw myself doing dope and drinking more scotch than you want to know and running around and, and I ended up back in my bed in my hotel room and he's telling this with all these kind of intellectual guys around and I'm sitting across the table saying oh Lord inside I'm saying this is weird don't let this thing go squirrely on us today what is this deal <laughs> and about that time a former ambassador from a major Latin American country a PhD in economics and stuff from Cambridge a real bright guy spoke up and he He's a guy straight out of central casting. He's tall, he has white hair, he has a mustache, he speaks like this. He spoke up and he said, Glenn, as you speak, your words touch my spirit. And I'm looking at him, you know, because I, I thought it was weird, you know. And he said, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. That song you sang years ago, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, he said, I love that song. It's a song of love and passion and love that is lost. It has kind of a spirituality behind it, you know. And I, I heard that song a lot of times. I never got that, I, you know. <laughs> and he said, but, you, you know, I, I come and eat with these friends here, but I don't believe in another life after this one. He said, I would, I would like to believe, but right now today I don't believe. But last week I was thinking, what would happen if I would die? What I would miss about this life? And he said, I decided one of the things I would miss most is coming on Tuesday morning to be with these men. As they love each other and love me and talk about Jesus. And I'm sitting here listening to this thing saying, God, how do you do this thing by your spirit where you tell this weird thing? Over? And the, this bright guy... Over, because God has a thesis, and it is this. 
It is not good for man to be alone, and I will do everything in my ability, apart from making him a robot, to see that he isn't alone. Come unto me, all you that labor and overworked, and I'll give you rest, and I will call his name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your son Jesus, who comes to redeem and to lead and to teach and to show us the way home. In that name we pray. Amen.